With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of The Christian Contrarian. I'm Gary Wayne, author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and this is episode 44, The Nephilim Wars, part 2, The Battle of Atherim. And in episode 43, we talked about the Battle of Rephidim that takes place three months into the Exodus, a time when Israel is not prepared for war. They've been imprisoned, enslaved, poorly treated as a nation that was growing in Egypt before the Exodus. Fed fat on polytheism, one presumes being immersed within one of the great polytheist centers of the early post-Diluvian world and one of the greatest empires of all time. After breaking the bonds of Egypt, and even though there were so many miracles provided by God through Moses to have faith that God would protect them, when Israel came out of the land of Egypt and they sent their spies into the land of Canaan, and the report came back and then embellished by some of the disloyal spies that they had too much fear and were not yet ready to take on the hybrids and the giants and the powerful military states, cities that are dwelling amongst walls that reach up into heaven. As Deuteronomy 1 describes it and reaffirms the details of the legitimate part of the reporting that comes out of the scouting report as opposed to the embellished part of the disloyal spies. But they do not have enough faith yet. It has not had long enough to be forged to continue into that land and they're going to march into the desert. And at the Battle of Rephidim, they take on the Malachites and except for God helping them, holding as a sign of God's help that they can hold Moses' arms up long enough, they'll win the battle. And so this is the collection of people that are going to go to the desert to train in the military, to prepare for battles. But more importantly, and one of the main lessons of the Battle of Atherim today is that they're going to have to rely on God and have faith in God if they're going to pull the campaign off. And so this is sort of the setting of the table for what is going to come afterwards and what they're preparing for. And so during the campaigns that are going to follow, campaigns that I would say that the church should spend a lot more time on to explain 
every battle and who the peoples are because the, these battles, these campaigns that Israel is going to set out on 40 years after being in the desert are teeming with details of the true history and of the people who were waiting in ambush to ensure Israel didn't reach their destiny of producing the Messiah. Just as the Battle of Rephidim, as we talked about, was all about in the last edition in episode 43. So that the Messiah wouldn't come. So that humankind couldn't be raised in the future time to be equal with angels and to judge those who committed the crimes against humanity throughout the epoch of Adam. And it's important to understand this so that we truly understand who we fight against. Because it's not just a battle that we are fighting on earth, even though these are the representatives and the followers of Satan and the fallen angels, but also they, the gods that they pray to, that they align themselves with, are the invisible ones that we must also fight. And so this is not just a fight against earthly ones, but also the heavenly ones and the invisible ones. We need to understand that so that we also understand what's going to happen in the end time because so much of end time prophecy is built upon the knowledge of history and prehistory that's presented in the Bible and defining it. And so is the case with the Battle of Atherim. And so it's important to understand these details. And the Battle of Atherim will come before they enter into the land of the covenant on a permanent basis. And it comes before the Eastern Campaign, and it comes before the Central Campaign, and it comes before the Southern Campaign, and it comes before the Northern Campaign and the Mountain Campaign. And this is going to last a generation, and they're still not going to get it all done, even with the help of God, but with the ongoing life of perpetual war, and what that takes for faith that we have no understanding of what they went through to continue on this. It is a set of campaigns and wars that we need to get our heads around that in a time when they were all alone in the world is the only island of monotheism that's just been really rebirthed back in through Abraham and then into a nation and surrounded in an ocean of nations of all polytheists ruled by giants and hybrid giants. This is what they're taking on. And essentially that's what we're going to be taking on in the end time. So it's important to understand this and how much faith it takes because we're going to need that kind of faith when we see the delusions coming at us in the end time. So much so that it will deceive the elect if that were possible. And Jesus tells us, indeed, that is possible and will happen. So we will have to rely on Scripture and be well suited with our suit of armor, our armor of God, to understand the times and what is going on so that we're not going to be deceived. So on to the Battle of Atherinum. And again, as I mentioned, this happens before the Eastern Campaign. And what's really interesting is this after the 40 years in the desert, after they leave Kadesh, where they go back to 
is, as Numbers 21.1 tells us, is to the way of the spies, the way of the scouts that went in and came back with the report that sent them packing on their 40-year delay to forge their faith in God in preparation for what was detailed in that report. And just as Deuteronomy 1 backs up all of those details of, of the report that we've already talked about. And they march up to the Way of Spies, which is very, very close to Hebron, where the Anakim kings were, with Ahiman and Sheshai and Talmai. And this is kind of like a test for Israel, so that God understands whether or not they have the faith to move forward to complete their commission. So they go back to the place where they murmured and refused to enter into the land at that time. And this is the land, as you recall, and I've talked about where the land of the hybrids of the Anakim and the Malachim and the Horim and the Edomites who produced the Amalekites that they fought at Rephidim. And as they're marching out there, King Arad of the Canaanites hears about them. And he takes himself and his army that is from the cities that he rules over out into the region where Israel is at the way of the spies. And Arad is a very interesting individual. And that's the Hebrew word uh, of the same spelling, 6166, which means fugitive, and also a place of a royal city of Canaanites. So it's part of the larger, greater Canaanite system and cities of domination. And this is a royal city. And we'll be talking more about royal cities as we go through some of these campaigns. And a royal city is kind of the center of a pentapolis that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But Arad has some interesting meanings and connections that we need to understand that sort of verifies the bloodline of these Raphaim and Anakim and Horim and Amalekim and on and on and on with all of these different names and answers some questions which solidifies our understanding of Genesis 10 and the families of the Canaanites, who we've talked about in the past as being hybrids. And this is one of those connections. And so Josephus, he talks about Arad as being Arudius, as he's listed, of the Arvidites. And of course, the Arvidites are part of the families of Canaan. And Arud, R -A -R -U -D of the ES, which is sort of a Greek sort of uh, add-on to, to the name, is essentially the same word as Arad, but he connects them to the Arvidites. And so we're talking about a bloodline of Arad here. And Arad is patrial and patronymic. So King Arad is patriarch of a city named 
Arad, and there are other cities named Arad as well that we'll talk about, at least one other one, and patronymic of the original Arad, a Raphaim. And Raphaim, who is the patriarch of at least one of the tribes of the families that have no patriarch listed, this one being the Arvidites. And in the Septuagint, we have Arvad as being um, <clears throat> Arad as well, not listed as Arvad, but in the Greek again, just as Arudius, which is a very similar spelling on A-R-U-D to A-R-A-D, they're listed as Rad in the Septuagint as the Greeks understand who these people were. And this is a very famous king and warrior of the Raphaim whom cities are named after. That's the patrial aspect as opposed to the bloodline, which is the patronymic sort of aspect of it. And Arad is one of the five cities of the Pentapolis of the Phoenician city-states. Even though there's more than just uh, Arvidites within Phoenicia, the Arvidites were one of those tribes. And one of their cities, actually two of their cities, made up two of the major pieces to the Phoenician Empire that King Hiram comes from, and the King of Tyre and Tyrus. And it was a very, very powerful nation that was not conquered by Israel and are there to test Israel after the conquest and the faith. And continued to do so right through the age of the judges and into the time of King David and King Saul. And so you have Arad as being patrial for the city that's up in the Pentapolis of Tyre, and also the king of Arad and patrial of Arad's city that King of Arad is from in the time of the conquest and the exodus and the battle that happens at... Um, Atherum, and this Aradian patronymic name is passed down through history. And what's also interesting about that is, and not that we can take this to the fact, but if you've ever read Lewis's Ginsburg's Legends of the Bible, which tells some details and um, about many of the things that happened in the Old Testament, although we can't take it as gospel, he suggests that, or the legend suggests that Ginsburg recorded that Arad was another name for Sion, who was a Raphaim. So I'm not convinced that that is the case, but I, I, I do think he was probably one of the original Raphaim. Just as Arba was the patriarch for the Anakim, Arad would have been perhaps a patriarch for... Um, <clears throat> You know, a whole tribe of Raphaim as well, as well as creating hybrids, just as the Anakim also created hybrids from Arba. And so, Arad is a royal city, a city that is the center of the Pentapolis, and a Raphaim city where kings ruled from within the whole land of Canaan and outside the land of Canaan. It's the way things were set up in the Raphaim world order of that time. And other cities of the Pentapolis of Arad would have been 
cities like Libna or Abdulin. We're not told all of the names, but we know there was multiple cities, which I'll touch on in a, in a second. And Arad is a very, very interesting city, just like Petra is, which is, again, kind of in that area, which was the home of the original Amalekim right after the flood. And Arad is a city that dates back to 2900 to 3000 BC on a secular dating and antediluvian by both accountings. So this is a city of the Nephilim before. And typically, just as Nimrod did, they renaissanced or renovated the ancient cities that weren't under, you know, left underwater after the floodwaters received and continued to live on those same cities. So whether or not it's Ur or Uruk in Sumeria, Jericho, all of those cities were built before the flood and were renovated by Rephaim kings and kings like Nimrod after the flood. And that's a royal city. And Arad, when he spots or he receives reports of Israel coming back up to the way of the spies, to Atherinim, and spies is the word Atherim, and it's a place. And it's going to be called Horma after the battle, but this is the way of the spies, Atherim, and that's where I get the name from. And that's recorded in Numbers 21.1, where it has the way of the spies. You take that back to Hebrew, and it's Atherim. And Arad takes his army out and fights Israel before they're ready for battle. And actually roughs them up and takes prisoners. But Israel escapes. And what happens is that Israel then as a collective group, call on the word of God, call on help, call on him to deliver them from the Canaanites led by the Aradian Rephaim king. And one presumes there are other Rephaim, Anakim, Horim, Amalekim amongst the king of Arad that are supplementing this army. And Israel has only had a dwelling for 40, dwelling place in the desert for 40 years. So no real manufacturing facilities to fight this well-armored with chariots and with bows and with iron and swords and everything that Israel didn't have. So it's no wonder they were roughed up rather quickly and then turned to God, which is a good thing because God agreed to help them as he did in Exodus. But Israel is a stiff-necked nation, as we've learned throughout the reading of the Old Testament. But they learned, Israel, that they could not win these battles without God. Between the battle of Rephidim with the Amalekim and the Malachites, and now at Atherim against King Arad. And so they agreed to have faith in God. They needed more than their military training. They, need to they needed to demonstrate their faith in God if they were going to fulfill their destiny. And at levels we can only try to imagine, because we can't imagine going up to, against these giants that are 9 feet tall, 10 feet tall, 12 feet tall, you know, somewhere between you know, 1,200 pounds to 2,000 pounds, maybe even larger, as you start to understand they were twice as wide as well as their height. They're built like... 
WWF wrestlers or NFL linemen and quick and adept and powerful. They were the ultimate killing machines designed for war and to enslave humankind. So God does help Israel and they go back and they fight against the king of Arad and they do exactly what God tells them to do and God delivers what he had promised to do to fight for them and to help them in these wars. And if you remember back in Exodus, in your readings, that in Exodus 23:28, God promises Israel that he will send hornets, swarms of hornets, to help Israel, to drive the armies and the giants into confusion, to deliver them up to send them running, to kill them, to make them easy prey for the much smaller and not nearly as well-armed Israelites. And we get the hornets delivering on that in Deuteronomy 7.20 and Joshua 24.12. So we get three accounts where we know that hornets are a significant part. I'm not saying there wasn't other things that God did, but obviously hornets are hitting at the sort of underbelly of the giants, just as taking the head seemingly is, is the way to make sure that they stay dead, which is probably part of the root word for Rafa, which means physician and healer, because it's thought that they could regenerate their wounds, and the only way to kill them was to take the head, just as David took the head of Goliath over 400 years later. And so, this is the battle that was going on at Athronim. And God delivered them, and Israel in return slaughtered the Rephaim that were with, uh, with, uh, with uh, King Arad and killed King Arad and killed the hybrid army as well. And they destroyed all of their cities, multiple cities of King Arad up in Tapolis. And the cities always had a mice network, something we'll talk about probably with, when we talk about the Philistines, was a network of villages also associated with the Avim as well as the Philistines that was a network of defense and offense for war. And they destroyed all of those in southern Canaan, close to Hebron and close to Petra. And what this does is it sets an example for what's going to happen in the future. That if Israel has faith and they don't tire and they don't grumble, then God will help them. But if they backslide, they're going to lose battles. And as we see that happening after the conquest, we see Israel loses faith and other nations start to enslave them, put them in bondsmen, make them pay tribute, all because they backslide into worshiping other gods and don't have faith in God and don't do what God has told them to do. So it's always more than just the battle in front of you. It's continuing to try, even though we'll fall short, but continuing to try to do what God wants us to do all of the time and that's what he what God wants is us to always try and that's what Israel is learning here and so we've talked about two battles and they haven't even crossed into 
the land of the covenant yet. But we do get the example and Israel, after 40 years of forging their faith and preparing for battle, are now battle tested. And Moses and Joshua will lead them to many, many victories, particularly Joshua after Moses dies. But what's also really kind of interesting is that Israel doesn't continue north into the land of the covenant, into the area where the Philistines would be just to the east of them, and into the land of the Anakim that were talked about in Numbers 13, even though they're very close to Hebron. But this is the land of the giants. And strategically, it, the Philistines were probably one of the more stronger nations of that time. Just as the Amalekim were the great Amalekite nation and one of the great powerful nations, the Philistines actually expropriated the land away from the giants, even though they were also hybrids and also had giants among them. They warred with the Avim, and even though some Avim remained with them, they actually defeated them. So this was a nation that either God did not want them to take on at the beginning or strategically, which is more likely, was not the area they wanted to enter in to do the various campaigns that were going to be required. So instead of going right into the land of the covenant, after this great victory, they are now on another exodus and probably a longer sized exodus with way more people and way more people to feed and to manage than at the original time of the Exodus. And so they're going to go by the way of the Red Sea and to the south and to the east and not and they're not told the to war with Edom as they pass through or Amman or Jordan. And they're heading right up on the east side going northwards towards the land of the Midianites, who also have a pentapolis of cities that we're going to talk about in part three of the Nephilim Wars. And they're going to take on King Sihon first and King Og second, which is what I call the Eastern Campaign. And this is a battle that makes, or a campaign that makes the battle of Atherim and combined with Rephidim, makes those two battles combined small by comparison to what they're about to take on as they go up north to meet King Sihon and Og and the five Midianite kings. And it's nothing to what they're going to compare when they move across the Jordan into the central campaign and then into the southern campaign and then into the northern campaign. And then after all of that, they have to do a mountain campaign where so many of the giants would have fled to. And this is going to last all, all of the rest of, of Joshua's lifetime and Moses' Will, will not live into the crossing of the Jordan River. So this is perpetual war. And now they're on a long march up to 
the region of Bashan and Astaroth and the home of the Baalim and Mount Hermon and into the nest of the original Raphaim who are allied with the Meniadites who, like the Amalekim, through um, a consort of Abraham, also have an axe to grind, so to speak, against Israel and skin in the game, so to speak, as well, to use another metaphor, because it, just as the Amalekim were trying to wipe out the Israelites to usurp the blessings that Esau did not receive as being descendants of Esau, and the Magianic blessing and the birthright and the blessing. So you got those three packages, the blessings, the birthright, and the Magianic blessing that they're trying to usurp to gain control of the earth and present their dragon Messiah for Satan. And now it's going to be when we talk about in the next battle in the Eastern campaign with the Medianites, that's going to come back into play. So if you're interested in some of the details as to the Nephilim Wars, I do have a document on this for the Battle of Atherim, just as I do have one on the Battle of Rephidim that was in episode 43. So you can get a hold of me if you want that at the Genesis 6 conspiracy. Um, at the Genesis 6 conspiracy um, dot com and that's the Genesis 6 conspiracy with the number 6 conspiracy and or through my email genesis 6 conspiracy at gmail.com which is also the same email contact on the website if you want the documents or if you want some past documents or if you have any questions probably the best way to get a hold of me as I'm only on Facebook right now on my other social media and I'm looking to see where things are going to settle out before I start to say where I'm going to spend time on, on the internet social platforms. And I'm hoping over the next month or two that that becomes a little bit more clear to me. I'm getting lots of suggestions, but it's still not clear to me where we're going to have sort of enough audience. And so I've only maintained Facebook because uh, I do still want to have some contact, but uh, I do intend to, uh, I, I do intend to, uh, you know, continue on social media, so I'm not going to be gone. And also, in case people are wondering, wondering I, I was talk, always, I've talked about quite a bit about the second Exodus book. I've put that aside, and I've been working very hard because it's just seemingly what I um, sort of need to be doing is is to do the sequel to the Genesis six conspiracy. So I'll be talking a little bit more about that as the chapters are just rolling off and filling in a lot more of the information in terms of prehistory and prophecy and the details from the biblical argument that is completely designed for a Christian audience. So I'm hoping to have that optimistically by the end of the year because it's moving very, very well. So until next time, may God bless you abundantly and, uh, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.